0: All right, 1 Kings 22, longest chapter in the Bible. Not really, just for me. I'm hesitant to say goodbye to Ahab. What can I say? We have been living with this guy for quite a while, and uh, we've learned a lot of lessons of what not to do (laughs) uh, by studying him. But as we are getting to the end of 1 Kings, the whole theme of the book is covenants and character. We're looking at the covenant relationship that Israel has with their God and their character in keeping that, or lots of times not keeping that. And then, of course, looking at God, His covenant relationship with Israel and how He keeps His promises, He never changes, and how His character is solid through and through. Remember, the author of the book of 1 Kings is writing to exiles in Babylon. Exiles in Babylon who, thought, who feel like God has abandoned them, if they, they believe it's too late, that, that God's through with them, or that God didn't keep His promises. And so, the author is writing and saying, no, God never changed. We're the ones who changed. God has been faithful. We're the ones who weren't faithful. And reminding them that if they'll just turn back to the Lord, God will keep other promises as well. So, right here where we're at in chapter 22, we're coming to the the end of Ahab's life, and Ahab is looking at this point in time to break his treaty with the nation of Syria. His desire is to recapture the Israeli cities that are still in Syrian control, but he doesn't want to do it alone. And so when Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, remember Israel split into two calves, the northern kingdom, that's what Ahab's king of, and the southern kingdom, when Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, comes to visit, he pitches, Ahab pitches his plan to him and asks Jehoshaphat to help. And Jehoshaphat's glad to help, but he wants confirmation that God is for, the, for this plan. And so while 400 false prophets support Ahab's plan, Jehoshaphat isn't convinced. And so Ahab calls in the only prophet he didn't invite, the prophet that he hates, the only man who actually loves the Lord and loves Ahab enough to tell him the truth. And so this time, when Ahab ignores the truth, it will cost him everything. So chapter 22, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. I'll start, our study will begin in verse 17, but I'm going to read in verse 13 for context. And the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spoke unto him, saying, Behold, now the words of the prophets declare good unto the king with one mouth. They're all saying the same thing. So let your word, I pray you, be like the word of one of them. Say the same thing they're saying, and speak that which is good. Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says unto me, that will I speak. And so he came to the king. And the king said unto him, Micaiah, shall we go up against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear, shall we call off the plans? And he, Micaiah, answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it unto the hand of the king. And the king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure you, make you promise, that you will tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? Remember when Micaiah, we looked at this last week, when he arrives, he originally agrees with the false prophets, but that was kind of his M.O. Ahab would bring the false prophets in and they'd all tell him what he wanted to hear, and then Micaiah would come in and he'd go, Yeah, what those guys said. And Ahab would be like, go lie to me, <laughs> even though the four hundred other guys just would lie to him. And so this was kind of his M.O. He would kind of sarcastically agree to arouse Ahab to be open to the truth. And so when Ahab would recognize the sarcasm like he does here, he would demand to hear God's real message. And so in verse 17, Micaiah gives it, and he said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd." And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? I told you that guy never has anything good to say to me. Never has any good news when I want to know what God has to say say to me. Micaiah's word is not good. It's a good word in the sense that it calls him to repent and not do this but it's not good if Ahab goes through with the plan. He says, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills like sheep that have not a shepherd. Sheep become susceptible to predators when they are spread out. Sheep might be weak, but I can tell you this, 36 hooves cracking your skull means death when you're just one wolf. So it's not like they're powerless. I watched an interesting video years ago of two or three wolves trying to separate a single sheep from a tight-knit herd. They keep coming in and nipping at it, trying to frighten it to bolt so that they don't have to mess with the whole herd. That's how the enemy works. Part of a shepherd's job is to beat off the predators and keep the sheep from panicking into leaving the herd. So what Micaiah saw was a vision of Israel looking like vulnerable sheep with no shepherd to keep them together. In other words, their king's dead. There's no one to rally them, no one to hold them together. If you go to this battle, Ahab, you're going to die and the people will be scattered back to their homes. Verse 18, that's why he says, did I not tell you that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? This is bad news, but only if Ahab stubbornly goes through with his plan. This is sad to me because remember the last time Ahab got really bad news from the Lord? Back at the end of chapter, I want to say 20, no, 21, when he had murdered, well, his wife had murdered Naboth, had Naboth murdered, and so he could take his vineyard. And Elijah told him, he said, you're going to die a violent death, and your entire line is going to be wiped out. Ahab, it, it, it literally shook him to the point that he changed his tune when Elijah told him this news. So, here's the question. Why doesn't this one frighten him? Like, if he already got this news, and it kind of, he flipped out. I mean, he definitely changed his act. He, he started kind of being careful about what he did as king because he didn't want to offend the Lord any further. Why does this prediction not frighten him? Well, because even though he was trying to be more careful and not offend the Lord, Ahab never repented of his sin. He never repented. And when I don't repent over and over again, my heart gets callous to God's warnings. I start thinking that the people who love me and tell me the truth are just giving me a hard time because they're my enemy. They're against me. They just don't want to see me be happier. They don't want to see me succeed. They don't want to see me do well. And so in verse 19, Micaiah, he explains He said, Hear thou thou therefore the word of the Lord. Let me explain. I'm not against you, Ahab. Let me tell you what the Lord showed me. Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, "'Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead?' And one said, "'On this manner,' and another said, "'On that manner.' And there came forth a spirit which stood before the Lord and said, "'I will persuade him.' And the Lord said unto him, "'Wherewith? How? What's your plan?' And this spirit, this angel said, "'I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets.' And he, the Lord, said, you shall persuade him, and you'll prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil concerning you. All right, that doesn't require any explanation. So verse 24, there's like a dozen passages in Scripture like you read, and you're just like, what is that? And most of the time, we just kind of, we think about it for a little while, and then we move on, Right? but it's there for a reason. It's inspired, so we can't just skip it. There are these dozen or so passages that I'll come to in my study time, and I'm like, oh, I'm at that chapter this week. Please send the rapture. (laughs) Because, you know, you look at this, and you go, I don't think I understand this. How am I going to explain it? And, And this is one of those passages, when you first come to it, you're like, all right this is gonna be interesting, I don't really know. I need to dig in and, and get some answers because you know, I think I've got some ideas, but I'm not quite sure what's going on here. So let's go through it and see if we can figure this out together. So first off, he says to him, hear thou, which means you must listen, you need to listen up to this. And it's hear thou therefore, in other words, the reason is because of what you just said. You just said that I'm against you, I never say anything good to you, don't care about you, I'm just your enemy. Because you think that I say what I say because I hate you, or I'm your enemy. You need to listen to this because your life depends on you listening to me. He says, "Ab, I saw the Lord. I'm not against you. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand, on his left. Now, we try to understand it when someone says this, There's a couple of explanations because, remember, no one could see the Father in this body and live. If I come before God the Father in his full presence, his full glory in this body, I'm toast. I'm worse than toast. So this body can't hold up to that. The Bible says very clearly in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So this body can't see the Lord and survive. So that means there's only two explanations for what he saw. Number one, either Micaiah, like Isaiah, who, remember he said, I saw the Lord, either Micaiah is seeing Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, which is possible. Abraham saw Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, didn't die. Isaiah saw him in his glory. It it totally messed him up, but but he was, you know, he didn't die. Uh, John saw Jesus, not in his pre-incarnate, but his post-incarnate glory, and he was wiped out, but he didn't die. So it's possible that Micaiah is seeing Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. It's also possible that Micaiah is using similar language to how Moses explained getting a glimpse into heaven's throne room. He says, you know, I saw these colors, and I saw what looked like something that was approximated like feet on a throne. So, I mean, Moses didn't see the full glory of the Lord. He saw kind of like the the afterglow or the after effects of the Lord. So it's possible that he's not saying, yeah, I saw the Lord. He's got blue eyes and red hair, and because we know that's not the case, right? The Bible says God is spirit, right? So we know that's not the case. It could be that it just, he saw the throne room, but not the Lord specifically. Either one works, and we don't know which one it is, but that is it, one of those two things is what's going on here. Now, when it mentions that the heavenly host there is standing on his right hand and on his left... That fascinates me because remember the context of where Micaiah is saying these things to King Ahab, it's like it's like a gala. It's like everybody who's anybody is here. The king, kings, both kings here. You know, all the important people here. All the prophets are here. Everybody who's anybody is here, and they're all at, at their best. But the scene that Micaiah sees is a far more regal gathering than the farce that he's summoned to. Far more regal, and you know that's something to keep in mind. When God might call you to speak to your boss about the Lord, or maybe like someone in the family who's well-respected, or, or somebody in your neighborhood, or whatever it might be, maybe even before a dignitary. If God gives you an opportunity to share your faith before them, remember that the throne room that you belong to is far more grandiose than any place you could be summoned here. Well, while the throne in heaven is a far more regal gathering, there is a similarity God's hand is a place of honor. So his right hand is a place of honor. So are the group of angels on his left hand fallen angels? In this meeting with Ahab, you've got Micaiah's a good guy, Jehoshaphat's a good guy. There's a lot of bad guys there. Is it possible that this meeting in heaven has both sets of angels? Well, we, we know that's the case because of what happens in a little bit. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. And the Lord said, who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall, die, at Ramoth Gilead? Now, the word here, persuade, it means to coax or to entice. Um, this is one of the scriptures that you, I read it and it just blows my mind. Because first off, we already know from other scriptures that God doesn't take counsel from anybody. Like God's up in heaven going, Gabriel, what do you think? Do we do A or B? You know, and Gabriel's like, "C, Lord, C's a better plan. Yeah, you're right, Gabriel. God takes counsel with no one. Like when he makes his plans, there is no one else he's taking advice from. We know that however that works in the Godhead, however God makes deliberations and decisions, his own counsel, we know he takes it within himself. I don't blame him. Anything else is a downgrade. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, God points this out about himself. Isaiah 46, verse 9, he says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. No one else is involved in this process. So, since we know that God takes counsel only with himself, then even though God's saying, Who shall persuade Ahab? That means God must already know what he's going to do. He already knows what he's going to do, which brings us to a second conclusion. God can't be asking for ideas here. He's not asking for ideas. He is inviting. Here's the important part. He is inviting his creation to make a choice. That's crucial. God makes his choices, and he doesn't ask us about his choices, but he invites us to make choices as well. Isn't that a fascinating thought? I've heard it said that God's sovereignty and man's free will are irreconcilable ideas. That is not biblical, not at all. And this is an example of how they intertwine. All throughout Scripture, we see that God, in His sovereignty, in His sovereignty, He's the one calling the shots. In His sovereignty, He invites, allows, and respects His creation's choices. However, those choices cannot and will never thwart His overarching plan. Never. So he invites us to make choices. You know, I love what Joshua, speaking for the Lord to the people of God, he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. You know, in the book of Ezekiel, over and over again, God pleads with the nation of Israel, why will you die? Repent, turn, make a different choice. Make a different decision. Micaiah sees this truth play out in heaven, but then it's mirrored in the meeting that he's at. You see, Ahab thinks he's the one planning this meeting. You know, Jehoshaphat, he gets news, he's coming down. He's like, we can pull this off. I get him to help me. We can take back this city. So he thinks he's the one who's planning this meeting. And the truth is, he did. He made a choice. And Ahab planned to manipulate Jehoshaphat into joining this military venture. But God also made choices. God set up the meeting so that Ahab wouldn't be able to manipulate the situation without God showing a clear difference between what was true and what was false, and by giving an easy-to-discern warning to both kings. I don't think I can fully comprehend all the details of Micaiah's vision, because God tells us in Isaiah 55, He just thinks differently than we do. When it says that God's ways are past finding out, that doesn't mean that we can't know what He, he has decreed. The Bible tells us that. Like, the Bible, God's ways being higher than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts, is not an excuse to dismiss something in the Bible and go, well, I don't understand this. Well, no, the Bible's really clear about this. So, that's not, we can't use that as an excuse to explain away things the Bible says and declares that God has revealed about himself. But when it comes down to, like, the processes of how God does things, I don't think I'll ever fully comprehend that. And I don't need to. But what God reveals to us teaches us a lot about Him and a lot about us. And it teaches us that my choices matter. God loves me enough to reveal His desires to me and to warn me against rejecting them. And when my choice defies God's choices, I'm in a bad spot. And So, the Lord says, anybody got any ideas? He knows what He's going to do but he's inviting his creation to make a choice as well. So it says, one said on this man. One, one angel came forward and said, I got an idea. Okay. Anybody else? Another angel came up and said, I've got an idea. All right. Anybody else? We don't get to hear what those suggestions were, but whatever they were, they didn't line up with how God had planned to do this. So the Lord keeps asking. And then finally, It says in verse 21, there came forth a spirit. The word here, spirit, literally means the spirit. In other words, there was a particular angel, a fallen angel, as we'll see in a second, a particular fallen angel that God wanted all along to fulfill his plan. And so when he steps forward and he says, he stood before the Lord and said, I'll persuade him. The Lord said unto him, Wherewith? In other words, what's your plan? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying or deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. Now, what the angel proposes here, of course, is wicked. So this must be a fallen angel. No other explanation lines up with what the rest of Scripture says about the faithful angels. None. This has to be a fallen angel. It cannot be a faithful angel. Now, we do know that fallen angels were active in the false prophets in the nation of Israel. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 2, there's a very interesting verse. It says in Zechariah thirteen two that when Jesus comes back, he's going to rescue Israel from certain things. In Zechariah thirteen two, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered, and I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. So he ties the, the false prophets and the un, and unclean spirits together that they were influenced by these demonic forces, these fallen angels had an influence in these false prophets, how they were leading Israel astray. And so, God hears this plan because he's the angel he wanted. He said, you shall persuade him and prevail also. The word prevail means you will defeat him. Now, why did God invite the angels to be involved in this thing? Well, in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Bible makes it very clear that God does not tempt us to sin. There's no confusion about James 1, 13 and 14. It says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, and here's our word, enticed. Enticed. God does not entice any man. Therefore, he needs to invite someone else to make a choice. And God knew, and his part of his plan. He would use this. What the enemy would mean for evil, he would use it for good. He knew that one of the enemy's fallen angels would go, I'll go to bat for this. I'll go and entice him. I'll go and pull on his lusts and his desires. And this is why God invites the angels to make a decision. God doesn't do evil things, but he gives the enemy permission to do evil things. That's interesting because the word persuade here, there's nothing sinful about the word. God's not engaging in any sinful behavior here. God doesn't tempt people to do wrong things, but he does give the enemy permission to entice a person's lusts. We have another example of this in Scripture when we see the life of Job played out before us. You know what's interesting about Job? He never finds out why he went through what he went through. You think you've got it bad? I don't understand what God's doing. How about that dude? Everything he went through, like never in the book of Job does God go, oh, and by the way, Job, here's why I let this happen. But we do. You see, we have access to chapter 1 and I think chapter 3 where it says that all the angels were summoned before God, just like here. And it says that Satan came and God asked him a question. He goes, where have you been? And Satan answers, Satan's answer is horrible, but I love, I love the answer because it just shows how he quakes in the presence of the Lord. He goes, I've been going to and fro throughout the earth. That's not a full sentence because we know why he's going to and fro throughout the earth. Peter tells us, seeking whom he may devour. He's not going to say that in the presence of Almighty God. Satan is not the opposite of God. He's just an angel, just an angel. And God could squish him like that if he wants to, and someday he'll deal with him. Have you considered my servant Job? Why are you going through this, Job? Because God was bragging on you. That's not why. But the Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? You're out there picking off the weakest people, what about my servant Job? He loves me with all my heart, faithful man. And Satan goes, Well, yeah, you blessed him incredibly. Like, you put a hedge around him. I can't even touch him. He said, Okay, I'll remove that protection, and you can do what you wish. Just don't hurt his body. And all that, the Bible says that Job did not curse God. Even when his wife was so distraught, he said, Why don't you just curse God and die? Why do you hold to your integrity? Chapter three Satan comes before the Lord again. Where have you been? going too far throughout the earth. Oh, yeah, a lot more than that. You just wrecked a man's life, brought incredible pain and suffering to not just him, but many people. He says, have you considered my servant Job? You made an accusation about him. Satan says, yeah, but skin for skin, man will give everything he has for his own life. The Lord says, fine, do whatever you want to his body, but don't kill him. Job never learns about any of that. Never. Satan, he works Job over, throws everything he's got at him to seek to entice him. But Job's reaction, of course, is very different than Ahab's reaction. Is Job perfect? No. And God has to deal with that. And we learn from that. But he's not like Ahab, where he just completely rejects the Lord. God did not command the enemy to do anything in Job's situation, but he did permit the enemy to do certain things that the enemy wanted to do. Choices, remember? And God used the enemy's choices to work in and through Job's life, and God uses the enemy's choices here to bring judgment on Ahab. And So, verse 23, Micaiah says, Now therefore, behold, this is what you're seeing in front of you right now, Ahab. The Lord has put a lying spirit. The word put here, it's not put. It means to allow, to grant an opportunity for something to happen. God did not put a lying spirit. God would never put a lying spirit in anyone's mouth. But he granted or allowed the enemy to do this. He gave permission for this to happen. The Lord allowed this, to this lying spirit, to be in the mouth of all these, your prophets, prophets and the Lord has spoken evil, the word just means disaster or ruin. this, This plan that you're going to go and it's going to be successful, it's going to end up in your ruin concerning you. You demanded the truth, Ahab, and there it is. You set this up to manipulate an ally, but if you go through with this, you're the one who will end up manipulated, and it will cost you your life. Well, the other prophets didn't much like being exposed. So Zedekiah decides to do the rational thing when someone exposes your sin. Verse twenty four. But Zedekiah, the son of Keniah, of sound mind and sound heart, went near and smote Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way went the Spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto you? I feel like I'm watching a Benny Hinn crusade when he gets critiqued. How many times have we heard about individuals who they get critiqued and they go on TV and say, God's going to kill that person? no different than this. I've seen so many violent reactions over the course of my life from individuals when they get critiqued. Listen, if I'm being unjustly critiqued, I don't need to defend myself. You know one of the worst things you can do when someone unjustly critiques you? Defend yourself. I was watching a video the other day, Ray Comfort. i didn't realize this, but a bunch of news outlets are like portraying him as like this multi millionaire televangelist, whatever. And I'm like, Ray Comfort? No one's met the man if they ever think that about him. He lives in like a tiny home. He j- I think he just bought a car for the first time like six or seven years ago. His, his ministry is huge, but everything is funneled into the ministry. We ordered tracks from them for free for years. They still do this. So much of what they do, they just give away. Could he be a millionaire? Probably. But what, oh, I love what he, how he handled this. He said, and he basically in the, this video he put out, he said, this is what I'm being accused of, and he listed all, he gave all the news outlets and direct quotes, pictures of the articles and things like that and the blogs. And then he said, to answer this, I'm going to let someone share an interview they did with me about 11 years ago. And it was a 60 Minutes interview. And where they go over and they explain how the guy owns nothing, has nothing. He's a simple guy. He's, he's, not, from our, he's not from our place. He's, he's, from, he's a Kiwi. He's from New Zealand. And the way they live is pretty simple. And he goes into it, the whole thing. He doesn't say a word. He just lets someone else defend him. And you know, when someone's attacking you unjustly, one of the best things you can do is just let the Lord defend you. Let someone else defend you. Certainly not react with violence like this. He punches Micaiah in the face, smites him on the cheek, the jawbone, the chin. And he says, which way went the Spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto you? Woo. Now, Zedekiah is confused because he did have some kind of supernatural experience, Right? I mean, it wasn't like he just made it all up. He did have some kind of supernatural experience. The problem was, it was at the hands of a fallen angel, not the Lord. So when he tells Micaiah, he goes, you know what? One prophet can be a liar just as well as another. And I know I received my message from God. That spirit's still with me right now. You're right, but that's not good. So he says, I know he didn't leave me to go to you, (laughs) which would be correct, except for the spirit of the Lord part. And one of the ways that you and I can tell the difference between the Holy Spirit and the spirit of error is that the Holy Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, gentleness, kindness, and self control. The spirit of error produces a pride and an anger that punches people in the face. That's a big difference. And so if you're out of control, or if you're being impatient, or unkind, or harsh, or lacking peace. All the things that James talks about when it's the carnal wisdom, the wisdom of this world, the devilish wisdom, in contrast to the Lord's wisdom, when He's speaking to you. If you're out of control or impatient or unkind or harsh or lacking peace, well, then you can know that no matter how convinced you are of your rightness, you're not being led by the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you how many times I've been all up in arms about something going on in our family situation or in our marriage. You know, and Beverly, Beverly will just look at me and she's like, Will, you look like you're ready to murder somebody. And when I hear those words, those things are designed to snap me back into attention and go, I've left the course. I've gone off course. I've strayed off course. No matter how right I might, have think, I might think my idea is, I am way over here right now because that's not how Jesus does things. It's not how the Holy Spirit works. In Micaiah verse 25, He doesn't defend Himself. He just says this, Behold, you shall see in that day when you shall go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. No defending Himself, no yelling back, simply self-controlled, truth-speaking. You're going to see it. See what? The truth of my vision. You're going to know that what I spoke was true in the day that he says you shall go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. Now, the writer does not tell. This is one of the stories in the Bible. I wish I knew what happened to this guy. The writer doesn't tell us what happened to Zedekiah when the war ended in disaster. But I can tell you this, kings don't have much patience for failure. And so I would guess Ahab's successor possibly, at best, fired this guy, and now he's in a chamber by himself. He doesn't have a, a job anymore. Or... Kings back then liked to execute people who caused these types of disasters. Whatever it is, he's going to end up hiding in shame because either he's hiding for his life or he's in exile. Now, this brings us to the end of the encounter. Verse 26 will tell us that Ahab has Micaiah imprisoned. Josephus tells us that Ahab was bothered by the speech. But that when he didn't see any judgment fall on Zedekiah for punching Micaiah, that he took that as a sign God wasn't going to do anything. I don't know if that's what really happened. But Ahab does ignore God's wisdom. And he has Micaiah imprisoned. Verse 26. And the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and carry him back unto Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, Thus says the king, put this fellow in the prison and feed him with bread of affliction and with water of affliction until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return at all in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. So he said, hearken, O people, every one of you. The king says, take him, which means seize him, put him in prison, give him the bread of affliction and the water of affliction. That Those are just light rations, a statement for light rations. Feed him just the bare minimum. Why does Ahab have him imprisoned? Well, you can't exactly have Micaiah walking around preaching that the war effort is a mistake. Uh, that would be negatively influenced morale. But he's not quite ready to execute him either. And so here's what he's thinking. I'm going to postpone his full judgment until I come back because when I come back, it will prove he's a liar. And then I can execute him for blasphemy. He spoke, said he spoke for the Lord, and here I am, alive and well. And that's what Ahab is thinking, what he plans to do. Well, Micaiah tells him, you shall not return at all, or if you return at all. The return at all just means if you return, if you return, it's doubled for emphasis. If you ever step back into the city one foot, I'll testify against myself, Ahab. You don't need to imprison me. But because he knows the Lord did speak to him, he leaves everyone present, not just Ahab, with an important message. Hearken, listen up, O people, every one of you. What an important message for the exiles that the writer is communicating with. Listen up, O people. Don't ignore God's warnings like Ahab does here. And so this is a word for us today as well. Has God been warning you about something? And are you listening because the choices that we make do matter. God had been so gracious to Ahab. I mean, we think of all the awful things that Ahab's done. He's you know, either imprisoned or murdered a ton of God's prophets. He is an idolater. He's a murderer. You know, he murders uh, his wife murders this guy, Naboth. He's, he's not a child of God. Why is God putting up with so much with this guy? Why is... Not God done something sooner. God has given him chance after chance after chance after chance to repent. And when we don't respond to God drawing us like that over time, when we make a choice to go, well, guess nothing's happening to me, God must not really care. Eventually, we run out of time to repent. Verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and enter into the battle. But you put on your robes. You you dress like a king. I'm not going to dress like a king. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. (laughs) This is so mind-boggling to me. Now, Ahab I get. I mean, bringing all the prophets in was never about finding the truth. Like, that was never what Ahab was after. It was about getting public approval for what he was going to do, whether God wanted him to or not. What God thought about it didn't matter to him. But why does Jehoshaphat agree to go? I mean, he's the one who asked for the extra opinion. You know, we know he cares about what God thinks. He's the one who asked for confirmation from the Lord. And he's the one who wasn't satisfied with 400 prophets all saying it was a good idea. Do you have anybody else? I have seen godly people go against their better judgment because they don't want to create waves. I've seen godly people remain silent because they don't want to lose a friendship or they don't want to lose the love of a family member. I've seen godly people jump into bad decisions hoping that God will honor their good motives or that their absolute loyalty to that person will somehow open their eyes. But that is foolishness. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, it says this. Proverbs 13, verse 20. He that walks with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Notice there's no qualification there. It doesn't say, but a companion of fools, if you're an unbeliever, will end up in destruction. No. doesn't matter which side you're on. If you're a companion of fools, you're going to come to ruin. But he that walks with the wise shall be wise. 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals, right? That's what the Bible says. Bad company corrupts good morals. We are to love unbelievers. We're to reach out to unbelievers. We're to invite unbelievers into our lives, into our church, into our homes, so they can see Jesus in us. We're supposed to do that but we can't lock arms with them in a way that leads us into disobedience or to places where we should never be. If someone says, hey, you know, you keep inviting me to church, how about you come? I'm doing a striptease next week. The answer needs to be, sorry, I can't. But you're welcome to come to church with me still. There are things we cannot do, places we cannot go, because doing so causes us to disobey the Lord. And Micaiah had made a very, very clear, gave very, very clear instructions to both of the kings. And Jehoshaphat, being a godly king, should have said, Lord, I hear what you're saying, and I'm I'm out. I'm out. In second Corinthians chapter six, verses fourteen through eighteen, it tells us very clearly, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship? What common ground? Like, remember he said, my people are, are your people. My horses are your horses. That's what Jehoshaphat said to Ahab. But that's not really true. What common ground does it righteousness have with unrighteousness? What communion and has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial, with Satan? And what part has he that believes with an infidel? What inheritance do we share? And the answer is none. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them, in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, in light of that, I live inside of you. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Jehoshaphat, maybe he was worried that refusing to join Ahab in this war would bring a state of war between the nations again. Remember, this is the first time there's been peace between the North and the South Kingdom in their entire existence. So maybe he's thinking, if I don't do this, Ahab might turn against me, and then everything I've worked so hard my whole life to build will be lost. But what Jehoshaphat needed to do was trust that even if that happened, that God would be a father to him, and he would take care of him, and he would take care of his people. That's what Jehoshaphat needed to do. And so if you're considering getting into a relationship or a partnership with someone who doesn't love Jesus, you need to heed this warning because this decision that Jehoshaphat makes almost costs him his life. Now, Ahab's got an interesting plan here. He comes to the king of Judah, and he says, I'm going to disguise myself. I'm going to dress someone who's not the king, maybe like an official or just a regular soldier. I don't know. Probably more of an official being that he's in a chariot. But I'm not going to dress like the king. What's Ahab trying to do? Pull the wool over God's eyes? You know, the Lord's like looking down from heaven going, where is he? (laughs) Gabriel, do you see him? No, man, I don't see him anywhere. Michael, do you see him? I don't see Ahab at all. Maybe, maybe he took your advice. Maybe he did, boys growing up. No, that's not happening here. Like, what, what is he thinking here? Was this Ahab's attempt to avoid God's notice? Does he really think that he can keep Micaiah's prediction from coming true if he wears a disguise? And then the other thing, why would Joseph had agree to this? Oh, by the way, you dress like the king. I'm going to go dress up in disguise. Sure, buddy, I'll be the prime target today. Ahab is being just as stubborn as Pharaoh was when he got to the end. Do you remember right before the 10th plague? Pharaoh gets so angry at Moses. He's just so angry and he goes, I don't ever want to see your face again. If if I see your face again, that'll be the last thing you see. He was so angry because he thought he was still in control. Even after nine plagues, You see, the illusion of control that we have gets worse the more we ignore God's warnings. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. And if that's you tonight, turn around before you come up with a plan as silly as Ahab's here. Now, I have to be honest with you guys. I read this, and part of me wonders if Jehoshaphat's kind of the dull bulb in the chandelier. He's not the smartest guy Why would you agree to this plan when he's only supposed to be there for support? Why draw attention to yourself and away from the guy that God says he's going to judge? Doesn't that make you the target of God's judgment? Or at least the enemy's ire? And you see, that's why it's dangerous to ignore Scripture and jump into a close partnership with someone who doesn't doesn't share God's values. Because when you step out from underneath God's umbrella of protection by ignoring His word, it gets hard to hear His voice. And when I don't hear God's voice, I make really bad choices. Well, Ahab's plan puts Jehoshaphat in serious danger because the king of Syria's plan is to send all of his best soldiers after the guy at the top. Look at verse 31. It says, But the king of Syria commanded his thirty and two captains that had rule over his chariots, saying, Fight neither with small or great, save only the king of Israel. Take this guy out, and the battle's over. And so it came to pass, verse 32 says, When the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, Surely that's the king of Israel. He's the only guy wearing nice clothes. And so they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. Capturing or killing the highest level target usually sends the rest running. And so that's the king of Syria's plan. Let's let's keep the bloodshed down, just go after the king. We can end this quick. And so they do. And when they target Jehoshaphat, he realizes he's in trouble, and he cries out to the Lord. And we hear that God answered his prayer in Second Chronicles 18.31. It tells us that the Lord heard his cry. Second Chronicles 18.31 says, Therefore they surrounded him to fight. He was, he was a mess. He was surrounded. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him, and God moved them to depart from him. God was incredibly merciful to Jehoshaphat. The guy's surrounded. He should be a dead man at this point. That should have gotten Joseph's attention so he didn't make any more foolish alliances like this one. Unfortunately, that's not the case. God's mercy isn't a license to continue to sin, and so in the future when Joseph makes a deal to construct an armada with Ahab's son, God doesn't give him mercy that time. He lets all the ships be destroyed. If God has been merciful to you, learn your lesson Don't repeat the same mistakes, and certainly don't use God's mercy as if it's a license to keep ignoring His warnings. Well, verse 33, we're coming to the end here. And it came to pass when the captains of the chariots perceived that it was not the king of Israel that they turned back from pursuing Him. They had strict orders. And so a certain man drew a bow at a venture. When it says a certain man, that's the Bible's way of saying some random dude. Some random dude. In other words, this was not a mighty warrior. This is not a guy that you know, was a sniper just looking for Ahab. This is just some random dude. And not only is it some random dude, but it says he drew his bow at a venture, which means innocently. He's not even trying to hit anybody. It's just cover fire or something. He's not aiming for anything. And it ends up smiting the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Uh, the armor that, they, that he was wearing is where two pieces of scale were soldered together. I was kind of impressed by that. It was like, they'd soldered back then? Yeah. They soldered the, the scales of armor, and then where it was soldered together, the metal, that was a weak point. That's where, if you know, if you pierced or, or you know, an arrow, a projectile got in there, you were vulnerable. And that's what happens. The most vulnerable part of those scale plates that were used back then for body armor, the, the bow, the arrow just slips in there, Wherefore, he said unto the driver's chariot, turn your hand, he says, Lost my turn your hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. Take me away from the battle. Verse 35, and the battle increased, became more violent. In other words, Israel's not winning. Here's the height of stubbornness. While the battle grows worse, Ahab's bleeding out. Things are not going well, but he's bleeding out. And Ab's thought is, if I can just stand here and be there for my people, we can win, I can get the city, and then I can heal up while he's bleeding out. And so it tells us the battle became more violent that day, and the king was stayed up. He, 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 uh, he remained standing, a symbol for his troops so they don't flee. He stayed up in his chariot against the Syrians, and he died at evening. And the blood ran out of the wound into the midst of the chariot. The man is in the middle of dying and he's still being stubborn. If I just stay here to the end, we'll win. God won't be right. I can still make this work. So like Pharaoh. Pharaoh was losing. Pharaoh was killing his own people. He was ruining his life. But still Pharaoh sends an army to bring the fleeing Israelis back to Egypt as slaves. And he ends up losing everything. When your stubbornness gets you into trouble... Your best decision is to accept the losses and turn to the merciful God who loves to forgive. That is the only course of action at that point. But Ahab doesn't do that. And so he dies as the sun sets. sun sets not just on this battlefield, but on his eternal destiny. And the only thing left to remember Ahab by is a blood-soaked chariot. And so verse 36, there went a proclamation, a loud cry, shouted orders, throughout the host about the going down of the sun saying, every man to his city, every man to his own country, just like Micaiah said. Sheep scattered without a shepherd. What a waste of lives. What a waste of resources. None of this needed to happen. But it went down exactly as Micaiah predicted it would. And so, verse 37, so the king died, and he was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and they washed his armor according unto the word of the Lord which he spoke. That's exactly what Elijah told him in the end of 1 Kings 20. Dogs are going to lick your blood. You're going to die a violent death, Ahab. God keeps His promises, even the ones that pronounce ruin. It's easy to think or say, "Why should I believe judgment is coming? Look at all the people who do evil things and get away with it. When has God done in our time the things we see in the Bible? Why should I be concerned Well we read about it in our scripture reading. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but he is long-suffering to us because he doesn't want any of us, including Ahab, to perish. But here's the truth: the day is coming when these heavens and this earth are going to go up in smoke and all the things you would say well I, I just don't see any evidence that that would ever happen it will be too late at that point God's character is sure what about yours? who's the more reliable person? you or God? that's an easy question to answer one of the things I love about the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is when Lucy, you know, is saying, I went to Narnia, and Edmund came with me, and then Edmund denies it. And so they're having this big problem, and they go to the professor, and they sit down with him, and they explain the situation to him. And the professor goes, ah, oh, I see. And, and Lucy is the more, one who's more likely to lie, right? Edmund's the truth teller. And they go, well, actually, no. And then he tells them, well, then why aren't you trusting your sister? Well, because it sounds crazy. Yeah, but her character, doesn't it demand that you should actually not dismiss her? Who's the more reliable character? You? Some scientist? Some atheist, you know, who's a lot smarter than you? Who's more reliable as a person? The Lord. I'm not more reliable than him. So trusting in myself and my own ideas is a mistake. You see, Ahab's biggest problem is that he was never truly honest with himself. He never examined himself and his own flaws when he looked at all the things he didn't like about the Lord. Don't make Ahab's mistake, because God will keep his promises and his character never changes. Verse 39 and 40, then the worship team can come on up. It says, now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house which he made and all the cities that he built... Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Archaeologists have found ivory inlays in the buildings they dug up from the mound of uh, Samaria during the time of Ahab's reign. They found his palace. Ahab was a prosperous king. Like if you're writing a story and you were like a, a person, like just from a magazine writing a story, you'd write it very differently than the guy who wrote this story of Ahab. But while Ahab fortified cities and had a beautiful palace, And while those accomplishments were written in the royal annals, the chronicles here is not the book of chronicles. This is just the chronicles of the kings. While those accomplishments were written in that book, they weren't written in God's book because those weren't important to the Lord. What made it into Scripture, what was important to the Lord, was Ahab's lack of character. Because whether we are wealthy or poor, our character is what's going to matter in the end. And so he dies. And Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. We'll learn more about his son Ahaziah when we get to the book of Second Kings. So, God kept His promise to Ahab, didn't He? Now, that's good news if you walk with the Lord, that God keeps His promises, right? But it's bad news if you're trying to control your own life, because God keeps His promises that are for our discipline or for our judgment as well. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. (laughs) You know what I've I've tried to remind myself, God's warnings are good because He loves me and He wants what's best for me. So it's never a bad thing to have the Lord kind of sit you down and go, Let's talk. This isn't good and this is where you're headed if you go this you know, if you keep going this way. That's not a bad conversation because it means the Lord cares about you enough to tell you that. And sometimes God sends people in our life to tell us those things that are hard to hear, to warn us to not go to destruction. So, trust God's promises, all of them, not just the happy ones, the challenging ones too, because in that, there is safety, there is a prosperous spiritual life as it draws us and keeps us close to Him. So, Lord, we thank you for your warnings. We thank you for, Lord, relaying this part of the life of Ahab to us. Maybe if we had read some non-inspired book about Ahab, we'd have a very different impression of him. But, Lord, you've revealed this to us for our benefit. So, Lord, we don't want to walk away from here not benefiting from it. So, Lord, if there's any of us here tonight that you've been warning, that you've been challenging, Lord, we want to embrace that. We don't want to be stubborn or hard-hearted or, you know, maintain the illusion of control but instead to just sit at your feet, to lay it all down and to do whatever you say, knowing that your thoughts towards us are good. Thank you, Lord, that your thoughts towards us are precious. In Jesus' name, amen.